So just before I get into it, uh, I've known Ian for 20 years nearly. It's been a great privilege and encouragement knowing him. I just wanted to announce that as a, a thing. He's been a good friend to me, a great encouragement to me. So I just wanted to commend him to you. So we are in this passage in John 5. It's a little bit of a tricky one. Um, we too, back at Hope Church, my home church, are going through John. We're a little bit further on than you guys. Um, so as you're journeying through this, this book, um, this week we've come to what's called the first sign in John. Right? This is the healing of the man at the pool in Bethsaida. Uh, and before we kind of get stuck into the details of the text, what I want to do is just remind us quickly why John wrote this book. Right? And then quickly explain a little bit of how John put his book together because it's going to be helpful for us as we look at our passage this morning. Uh, so if you jump forward to near the end of John's Gospel in chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31, after Jesus has been raised from the dead, after he's conquered death, he's revealed himself to his followers, John tells us why he wrote this book. He says Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Right? John's purpose, John's point, everything he writes and records in this book is written that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by that, in that, through that, you may have life, new life, in his name. Now, a little bit of technical work. The book of John splits broadly into two halves, right? Chapters 1 through 12 is sometimes called the book of signs. Right? And what we see there is John built his book around seven public miracles, public signs that are performed by Jesus in order to display who he is. Right? That's how it works. That's what's happening in the first half of the book. The second half of the book, chapters 13 through 21, is sometimes called the book of glory and it takes place in the final week of Jesus' life. Right? It records his private teaching of his apostles and it really focuses in on the glory of Christ and his cross and his death, burial and resurrection. This morning we come to John's third sign, which is the odd one out of the signs he records. Right, it's the odd one out of the seven, it's a difficult one, because this is the only sign that is made entirely with unbelief. Right? That word believe is the key word for the whole of John. Believe that you may have life. And in this passage, this sign, we're made entirely with unbelief. Right? We don't find that word in response to the sign. John records these signs that we may believe, here we're made unbelief. In fact, we're made with selfish indifference at one point and then outright hostility in the other. So what's going on here? Well, I kind of called this sermon, if you want a title, to a note taker, Adventures in Missing the Point. Because right? that's what we have here today. Missing the Point. Right? We're going to kind of split it in three parts. First section, looking at the man, you see someone who's healed, but ultimately hopeless. Then you see people who are resting, restless in the Sabbath. And then you just get to the point right, in the final section where Jesus talks about who he is 
what he's doing. So he'll be homeless, wrestling in recklessness, and then getting to the point. That's what we're going to do. Now, our passage begins by telling us that Jesus is in town for one of the Jewish festivals. He's come to Jerusalem in order to celebrate this festival. We're not actually sure which festival this is. Some commentators make a big deal of trying to figure it out, but it doesn't really matter this time. This passage hasn't got anything to do with the fulfilling of this particular festival. Right? John is telling us where we are. He's giving us this information just to locate us. We're in Jerusalem. We're near the Sheep Gate. Right? That's in the northeast corner of the city wall. Right? It was where they brought the sacrifices for the temple into town. That's its purpose. That's the place we came in. Near that gate was a series of columns that, and pillars that are covered with roof that surrounded this famous twin pools of Bethsaida. Right? There's two pools, five colonies, right around it, one through the middle of the two. That's how it looks if you wanted to kind of understand the visual of it. Right? So near this pool, that's where we are, this covered area provides shelter for this, basically for the homeless, largely. That's what you've got here. The homeless, the broken, the suffering, along with this potential hope of being healed. That's why this area is so full with the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Remember, this is a time when there is no welfare system. Right? If you have these kind of levels of disability, unless your family have some sort of wealth and ability to take care of you, it can basically mean poverty, potential homelessness. This part of town we're in is the bit of town where people sleep with. That's where we are. Right? But Sida itself means house of outpouring. Right? And tradition was that an angel would occasionally stir up these waters, and when the water of the pool was disturbed, the first one into it would receive healing. That's the tradition. That's why so many people come to this area trying to find hope. But you might notice in your Bible that the text kind of jumps from verse 3 to 5. Right? Verse 4 is probably in a footnote at the bottom of your page. It isn't found in the earliest manuscripts. It's likely added later as an explanation that explains this tradition surrounding the pool. Right? That's why it goes 3-5 in your Bible. But in verse 5, we meet this man. He's been an invalid for 38 years. John doesn't tell us what his illness is, but from verse 7, it's fair to say that he's paralyzed, he's lame, or he's exceptionally weak. And he's been coming to this pool probably for the majority of his adult life. Right, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him this, let's call it a weird question. Do you want to be well? Now, before we get into the question, let's just notice that Jesus is the one who initiates this conversation. In fact, Jesus initiates this whole encounter. He comes to this area in order to meet this man. It's not a random bumping in to a person. Right, this is an act of sovereign grace. This is a divine appointment. Jesus has come here to seek this man out. The man does not seek Jesus. His friends don't cut a hole in the roof and lower him in. He's not here to see Jesus. In fact, he looks like he doesn't know anything about Jesus, basically. Notice that Jesus knows all about this man's situation. He knows how long he's been coming to the pool. He knows his condition. This is a display of what we call 
calling grace and mercy. Right? The reason I say it's calling grace and mercy is you see later this man doesn't come to faith. Right? He isn't a believer. Jesus knows this and yet he seeks him out to display God's love and kindness. In Matthew 5, Jesus tells us this, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise in the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Right? The point is that God's kind to all. Later, in the passage, Jesus will say, very truly I tell you, the Son does nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father do. Right? Because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. The Father is kind to both the righteous and the unrighteous, to the just and the unjust. And Jesus, the one who makes the Father known, is doing the exact same thing. Right? He's moved here by compassion and pity and sympathy for this broken man. He sees him lying here and he asks him this question, do you want to be well? Sir, the invalid replies, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm trying to get in, someone else gets in in front of me. Jesus says to him, get up, pick up your bed, and walk. At once the man was cured, picks up his mat, and he walks. Second thing to notice is what I call that weird question, do you want to be well? And the reason I say this is a weird question is on the face of it, this guy has been crippled for 38 years, has been coming to this pool for ages, so it certainly looks like he wants to be well. But it looks like he's pursuing help actively. He keeps coming to this place every day in the vague hope of a miracle. But there's actually more to this question than meets the eye. It's not simply about physical healing. It's actually shorthand for gospel grace. It's a kind of little colloquialism. Jesus does this all the time in John. In the previous chapter, when he's speaking to the woman at the well, he says, if you knew the gift of God, and who was asking you for a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. In the next chapter, he's going to describe himself as the bread of life. This is the same idea here. When he's speaking of wellness, he's showing himself to be what the Puritans would call the great physician. Jesus is the one who makes broken, fallen, sin-sick sinners, sin-sick crippled well. And that's what he's come to do. That's what he's offering this man. More than simple healing. He's offering him grace. He's offering him salvation. He's offering him life, spiritual wellness. The man doesn't get it. Right? That's what we see here. The truth is he doesn't want to be well. He wants to be healed. He wants to be physically able. He doesn't really care how he gets it. The man's response to Jesus shows his kind of lack of spiritual understanding. It shows his blindness. Sir, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying, someone gets in in front of me. He's no idea what Jesus is all about when he asks him about wellness. He doesn't know who he's dealing with. He seems utterly unaware of who Jesus is. He still thinks his best shot of healing is getting into this pool when the water is stirred. Jesus says to him, get up. Pick up your mat. Walk. Once the man is cured, picks up his mat and walks, Jesus now reveals to him who he's dealing with. Right? He shows him his power. With the word, he heals him. The one who spoke the world into existence now speaks this broken man back to health. Right? With the word, 
This is a display of God's spectacular creative power. Remember, Jesus is revealing the Father. When I see the Father do it, I do it. Now, I'm going to reveal the Father to you. Get up. Two words. The 38 years of disability comes in. This is spectacular power. This man's life is turned upside down. His circumstances are now utterly changed, but sadly, his heart is not. Sadly, his heart is not changed. The next few verses show this. We'll get there, but before we do, I want to just take a second to think about signs. You see, we live in a time where people say things like, if I could only see God prove himself, then I believe. You know, if you could just let the sky open and speak to me, I believe. If I could just see a miracle, like, you know, crippled man walking or a blind man seeing or a dead man raised to life, well then I for sure believe. And the reality is we don't. Tens of thousands of people saw Jesus perform miracles. Knew it for a fact. And most of them were utterly unmoved by that reality. Some were attracted to his power. They were there for the show. They see what they can get for themselves. But when it gets heavy, when it gets deep, when it got hard, they hit the bricks. They walk away. You see, faithlessness is not actually a result of a lack of obedience. Faithlessness comes from a lack of belief. That's our problem. All the signs in the world cannot fix spiritual deadness. Can't do it. The purpose of a sign, obviously, is to point to something else, correct? That's what signs are for. But a sign is only useful if I follow the information. A map is only useful if I do what it says. My sat-nav can't actually get me anywhere. It can only get me somewhere if I do what it says. It can turn it on, it can be flawless, it can be inerrant, it can be absolutely perfect in every way, and if I ignore it, I'm still lost. Still, where it started. A sign is only as useful as the one who follows it. Right? Jesus performed signs to reveal who he is and what his kingdom would be like, to show that he is the Messiah, to show that he is the Christ, the Son of God, to point forward to his kingdom. In my kingdom, there will be no weakness, there will be no blindness, there will be no death, there will be no pain, suffering, fear. Each time he does this, he's showing us something. Who he is and what his kingdom is like. And the point is, he's Jesus. The same, by the way, stands for miraculous signs and works today. The point and purpose is always to reveal and glorify Jesus. That's what they're for. This is the absolute center, the heartbeat of the Holy Spirit's ministry and work. That's the problem with so much of what's passed off as revival today and outpouring. See signs and wonders, and that is beautiful and good. But if we're not pointing to Jesus, if we're not glorifying Christ, if people aren't coming to know Him, we're missing the point. If I make it about the show and not about Jesus, then the sign is worthless. Right? Anytime you're examining the Holy Spirit's work, ask yourself is Jesus receiving glory and honor? Jesus being made much of here. And if he is, we know the Spirit is at work in him. 
as took place on the Sabbath. The Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. He replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So uh, he asked him, Who's this guy who told you to pick up your mat and walk? The old man had no idea who Jesus was, for he had slipped away out of the crowd. Later, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well again. Stop sinning, or something worse will happen to you. The man went away and he told the Jewish leaders it was Jesus who had made him well. So Jesus slips away and off the man goes, carrying his mat. And as he's on his way, some of the Pharisees spot him and they reprimand him. They start to rebuke him for carrying his mat on the Sabbath, which, by the way, is not law breaking. The law does not forbid it. But we'll come back to the Pharisees in a bit. This interaction with the Pharisees is where we begin to see the reality of the man who unshaved heart. But his initial response to the rebuke of the Pharisees is an attempt to explain his situation. Look, this guy told me to pick up my mat and walk. I'm a cripple and now I'm not. And so I did what he said. The Pharisees are like, who told you to pick up your mat? Who is this guy? He has no idea. He slips away. Perfectly fair, right? It's a perfectly fair response. There's no problem in that. He explains what's happening. It's not his fault the Pharisees responded in this way. Jesus has slipped away before he could find out who he was. But it's the second interaction with Jesus that is telling. But later, Jesus again finds him. He's not gone looking for Jesus, he's not trying to find him, he's not run off to seek in search of him. No. Chosen really to heal him, 
this discipline should be a path to life. But it's not. The man doesn't respond in faith. There is no mention of worship. In fact, there's no sign of gratitude whatsoever. After this encounter with Jesus, his initial reaction is not to fall down and worship. It's not to go back to the Pharisees and correct their faults and misunderstanding. You'll see someone do that later if you compare it John the blind man, who when the Pharisees challenged him, says, listen, I know I was blind, now I see. Very sure this Jesus guy is very awesome. Right? That's the reaction that we're meant to have. Life turned upside down. Jesus seems to be pretty awesome. I think you've missed the point, guys. No, he goes back and he just sits Jesus in. Try to keep himself out of trouble. That's his heart. That's what he wants to do. And so this is a tragic story, but really it's a reminder of our need for spiritual intervention. Right? We need the Holy Spirit when it comes to this. We can't do it on our own. We need him to come and grant us grace to make us live. The reality of the human condition is not simply spiritual sickness, it's spiritual death. We are dead in our sin and trespasses, Paul says, or lost people. And unless we are given life, unless the Holy Spirit bursts in through his gospel and makes us alive, gives us new birth, we will never come. No matter what we see, no matter what we experience, salvation is always entirely dependent upon God's grace. That's what we have to see here. It's a reminder to us of how needy we are. We need the Holy Spirit. We need Him to move. If you have family here who do not know Christ today, your apologetic skill will not see them come to Christ. Your best efforts in preaching and demonstrating will not see them come to Christ. These are good, positive things. But what they need is the Holy Spirit to explode their heart, to grant them grace. So where do we go in that situation? We go to Christ himself. Because he's the only one who can do this. The passage we'll see later, he is the one who gives life. So if you want people saved, go to Christ, pray. Ask him to change hearts. Ask him to make much of himself. That's our first point. This hopeless man healed of hopeless. Next we see the Pharisees who are all about the Sabbath, all about the day of rest, but they're actually resting in restlessness, right? This healed man's interaction with the Pharisees kind of launches us into another point mission session. This time it's the Pharisees who don't get it. Look back at their first interaction with the healed man in verse 10. It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. The man who made me well said, pick up the mat, walk. So they asked him, who's this man who told you to pick up your mat? That's a stupid question in this situation. <laughs> really stupid question. Not who's this guy who told you to get up when you've been crippled for 38 years. No, who told you to pick up your mat and carry it? Point missed. Way over the head. Gone. Right? Firstly, what they're saying is biblical nonsense. Law does not forbid you to carry your mat on the Sabbath. This man isn't breaking any biblical commandment whatsoever. He isn't in violation of God's law. What he's breaking is their traditions and rules that the Pharisees had added to the law, this fence that they created around the law. Understand this Jesus and his followers kept the Sabbath in his day. Jesus is the law fulfiller, he's the one. 
who came to keep the law for us so that we, we receive his righteousness. Right? Jesus kept the law. He obeyed the Sabbath, as did his disciples. But the Pharisees have added so much ridiculous tradition to Sabbath, and Jesus will have nothing to do with it. He's just not playing their game, and this enrages the Pharisees. You see, Sabbath was the focus, the heart of their religion, and they had added so many man-made structures around it that instead of being a day of rest it had become a burden it had become a weight on top of the people the laws and rules and routines that they inflicted upon people actually made it more difficult to rest on the day of rest than it was to work on the other six days they had turned sabbath keeping into a job right, which completely distorts the point of sabbath more work trying to rest than work trying to work. That's ludicrous, right? The day of rest is given by God as a gift designed to point forward to his son, to Jesus, the one who is coming to bring rest to weary, broken sinners. Come to me, he says, and I'll give you rest. That's his point. That's what he's here to achieve. But it has been utterly corrupted by these Jewish leaders. It has become wearisome. It's become burdensome. The Jewish leaders are so caught up in this wearying tradition that when they're confronted with a man who has been crippled for 38 years, they ask him about his mat. He's walking, and you're talking about carrying a mat. This is ludicrous. God who healed you know how did he heal you? Who told you to carry your mat? This is another tragic state of affairs. These guys are so obsessed with their own laws, their own rules, and ultimately their own self-righteousness. And they miss the entire point of Sabbath. The one who Sabbath pointed to, the rest given is here. And he can't see it. In fact, you hate him because he is blowing up your system. He's not doing anything persecuting him. That's what our text says. And it's the day Jesus says to them, my father is always at work. Just don't get it. They're so stuck 
in their tradition and so scared of their own goodness. But even when the point of Sabbath is right in front of them, the one who has come to restore rest and bring wholeness, they hate him. They want him dead. They freak out because he makes himself equal with God. Utterly missing the point that he is God. That's why he makes himself equal with it. Watch your proof. We just told the sick guy to be crippled for 30 years to stand up. And he stood up. Get the point. Look at the evidence. But no. It's again spiritual deadness reigns. And like the Holy Spirit in the leaves. As we know. This is a warning, by the way, for us who grew up in the church, particularly. Huh? You can go to church every Sunday. You can memorize the Bible. Speak Pharisees, go find a girl, and you want to do it. You can memorize chunks of the Old Testament. The rules, you can come here every week and you can be utterly lost. You can be utterly lost. You don't know Jesus. You don't know who he was. You don't know the reality of the truth. And that's the final point. Why Jesus gives them this answer. We get the point now. Truly, I tell you, a son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father do. Because whatever the father does, the son does also. Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show you even greater works than these. So that you will be amazed. For just as a father raises the dead to give life, so the Son has given life to whom he pleases. Moreover, the Father can give no one who is entrusted with all judgment to the Son. Whoever may honor the Son as he honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father.
Okay, you can eat all the girls in the world. You can be the super Bible guy. You can keep the rooms. You can be Sammy. Everything you know, you can see signs and wonders. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 5, says you can even perform them and be blessed. Because ultimately, if you don't know Jesus, if you have not repented of sin, if you have not trusted in him, if the Holy Spirit has not given you life, this morning, a big question every morning is, do I know Jesus? Is he my Lord? Is he my Savior? Have I trusted in him? Is he my treasure? Is he the thing I value above all other things? Is Jesus my Father? This is always a big question. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you that you sent your Son into the world to make you known. And that you came and you performed these miraculous wonders that he revealed you and all your goodness and glory. Lord, we thank you that you went to the cross and there you died in our place for our sin, taking them in death. Oh, in Jesus' name, he went to the grave, but on the third day, he conquered it. He rose from the grave and he rules and reigns over all things now. One day he will return and split the sky and bring his kingdom to its fullness. Place of joy.